Well, I've never seen Samuel dancing before, but beautiful to watch. Got <laughs> a great number there from Carmen when the roll is called up yonder. Yeah. We were doing the bass lines and the tenor lines and just having a great fall. Welcome, Samuel, to 105.1 Bendigo's Positive Choice. It's good to be here with you live again. Yes, thank you, my brother. It is such a tremendous joy to be together. We haven't been together like this in a studio in a while. It's about almost uh, 12 months, actually. It has yeah. been. Yeah, quite a while. But Alita does a fantastic job, and I guess she probably is listening in secretly. She, yes, yes, <laughs> she is. She indeed. does a great job, but she's a, she's away for a few few uh, uh, for a week at least. Yes, and uh, she deserves it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. By the way, my name's right. Peter Stanton, and sitting off from me is Pastor Samuel, and uh, he's from uh, reasonable Christianity. It's <laughs> <laughs> bunch of reasonable people. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> now, talking of reasonable things, we uh, you've covered in the last few weeks i understand the gift of um, speaking in tongues yes You've talked about prophecy yes but today we're going to look again because someone a number of people have said what about interpretation of tongues yes yes what uh, about that we did um as part of our uh, you know as answering the question on the gift of the spirit so we've done a long series there and and last uh, last sunday i was like okay we've talked about tongues and uh, we've pretty much in the close of the chapter because I mentioned the interpretation mm. of tongues as passing. But uh, some of our listeners are like, no, 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 can you go back and just give us a bit more on interpretation of tongues? So I will, because uh, interpretation of tongues is attached to the gift of tongue itself, uh, so I'll, I'll just simply, you know, a little quick uh, brush up so that everybody can can sort of see what we, we talked about. We did say... Um, the last Sunday that, you know, speaking in tongues was the, the among all the gift of the Spirit, as we looked at them uh, from First Corinthians chapter 12, uh, you know, reading from verse 7 to 11, from all those gifts, speaking in tongues was the, the only, if you will, innovation of the New Testament church. Because there is no recorded incidence of people speaking in other tongues in the Old Testament. You've got recorded of, you know, gift of word of wisdom, word of knowledge. You've got the gift of power, you know, workings of miracles. You've got the prophecies, you know, you've got all, all that in, in, in the Old Testament. But you do not have the phenomena of speaking in tongues. And speaking in tongues as a phenomenon starts at the very day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit comes in, and we cover that part, the kind of tongue that was spoken then. People heard the apostles speaking in their mother tongue, people from Cyrene, people from Alexandria, people from Rome, from Phrygia, from all around the Roman Empire at the time. So we could say that that speaking in tongues was sort of intelligible tongues where the people who spoke spoke a language that the people who heard understood what the language was, which is even in, in, in that is quite an amazing phenomenon in itself. Why? Because a, a, any linguist would, would tell you it takes about two years of focused effort mm. to be able to encapsulate, understand the language and articulate it in such a way that you can tell a coherent story, put a coherent thought together. And so for someone, after just simply a, a, a bit of a noise that sounded like a wind in the room with tongues of fire on their head, and suddenly these Galileans could speak the language of the people from all across. This is what was amazing to the people that 
what is this? Like, aren't these people Galilean? How come we can hear them in our own language? Because now suddenly they had been given a supernatural uh, ability, supernatural power. In other words, the Bible said they spoke as the Holy Spirit enabled them. You see, this is an, a supernatural enablement of the Spirit. So they start to speak. And so many uh, of the you know theologians who have looked at the uh, speaking tongues, especially those who sit on the side of not wanting to accept that as a phenomenon that continues today in the church, they sit either on the secessionist argument, which you have looked at, it's not strong that, that strong enough, and or they say, well, look, that tongue there was because, you know, it was evangelistic. So the people who heard them speaking tongues, you know, we're getting the message of the gospel. Well, yes, that makes sense until you read Acts of the Apostle chapter 10, where when Peter gets to Cornelius' house, there are only Jews there and Cornelius and his people. And when the Holy Spirit comes upon them, they start to speak in tongues and there is visibly no other benefit for which they're speaking in tongues there. So they start to speak in other tongues. And the apostle recognized the phenomena because they'd seen the phenomena before. And so they speak in tongues and the apostles don't say, oh, wow, amazing. We can hear them speak. No, they were speaking already in Greek. Okay, those people would have spoken in Greek, which uh, Peter spoke really well. And they would have spoken, you know, Peter spoke Aramaic uh, uh, and, and Greek. I don't, we don't have any record that Peter spoke um, uh, Latin, but he may have because afterward when he went to Rome, uh, but at least Paul, we know he spoke and Greek and Aramaic and 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 uh, uh, Latin. So, because Latin was a high class language for for the you know, you know top class Romans. So, in that sense, they just marvel at the fact that these people are speaking in other tongues. And then you know the Jews who were there, like, what what are we waiting for? If the gift of the Holy Spirit manifested here by the speaking of tongues has happened to these people, what are we waiting to baptize them in the water? So they take them and baptize them in the water. Now we're wondering, if you're a, a Bible reader, you're wondering, what was that, what was that about? Okay, And then you go to um, Acts chapter 19, in Ephesus you find another phenomenon. Apostle Paul comes, he finds these, these disciples, they had you know, heard about Jesus, they'd given their life to the Lord in some fashion, but they had never heard of being baptized. He asked them, hey, have you been baptized in the Holy Ghost? They're like, well, no. We didn't even know that there is such a thing as the Holy Ghost. All right. And so he's like, well, come here. He takes them and baptizes them in the water and lay hands on them. As knowing and expecting that something would happen of this baptism of the Holy Spirit they've got. So as he lays hand on them, what he notices that tells them that the Holy Spirit has come upon them is they start to speak in tongues. Mm-hmm. And there is no other reason, no evangelistic reason. So many theologians today have come to the conclusion, well, there was that tongue of speaking that is, you know, intelligible, listening, people hearing what you're saying. And there's another tongue that people speak, but nobody gets the meaning. Well, how do we know that? Then we go and find the phenomena happening in Corinth. Otherwise, Paul wouldn't be addressing it. Paul addresses the phenomena in Corinth because people use the speaking tongues without interpretation. Okay, so uh, for the sake of putting order in the church, uh, he started to address this case. And, and we did uh, make the case for that type of speaking tongues when you speak a language that other people don't understand. And I dispelled a myth 
that people think that a language has got a meaning only if you can understand what that meaning is. You know, I heard a you know a, a theologian um, who was laughing at people who are speaking in tongues, saying, "Well, they're just simply speaking gook, You know, mm-hmm. you know, you can't get anything they're saying. So what's that? I'm like, well, because he's monolingual, he doesn't understand that if you, you know, I grew up in a multilingual uh, country, mm-hmm. uh, we have so many languages, and everybody speaks. People who speak the language, I don't get it, but they know what it means. So the fact that I don't get what that sound means doesn't mean that it doesn't have a meaning at all. And so in that sense, uh, I speak six languages right now. So I could be here and I could start to praise God, my brother. I could raise my hands and start to praise God in my mother tongue. All you will hear is... It won't make any sense to you. But it will be making sense to me. And so because I know what I'm saying. So in that sense... Uh, the speaking the tongues, the phenomenon that happens in the church, uh, and, and this one that people don't get the meaning, it is affirmed by First Corinthians. And I did give, when you read First Corinthians chapter 14, I gave uh, a lot of uh, benefits. Number one, that the person who speaks in tongues speaks to God. God gets him. He doesn't understand it. His mind is unfruitful, but God gets him. So, verse 2 of First uh, Corinthians chapter 14. Number two, the person who speaks in tongues like that edify himself. Paul, the apostle Paul tells us that. Verse 4. And, and he, he goes to verse 5 says, I would like you all to speak in tongues. So he didn't say, this is bad. Don't you ever dare. You know, just make sure that nobody in the church ever dares to speak in tongues. And, and so he goes on to uh, verse 14. He says, when I speak in tongues, my spirit prays. My mind doesn't get it. And verse uh, 18, he says, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Paul didn't say, well, I actually don't think it's a good thing. No, he, he was thankful to God that he does speak in tongues. And that he says again that the speaker who speaks in tongues speaks to God uh, and so on and so forth. And verse 39 to finish there, he said, do not forbid speaking in tongues. So I wanted to sort of bring people up to speed there. Now, what about interpretation of tongues? Interpretation of tongues is very different from translation. So the word used there is a strictly interpretation. Um, interpretation of tongue, translation is when the person who's translating knows both language mm-hmm. and then can look and find corresponding, you know, idea for idea or, or, or word for word. What is it? I've done interpretation. I can speak French and English. So it requires I know both languages. But you see, interpretation of tongue that Apostle Paul presents to us here is a supernatural gift. It's a supernatural phenomenon, which means the Holy Spirit gives the person, pardon me, to speak in tongues, and the Holy Spirit gives the person to understand what is being said, not to understand exactly the meaning of every sound, but to get the message of what is being spoken. Mm. And so, in that sense, interpretation of tongue must be separated from from, you know, just translation. Translating a language requires that you know the two languages that you are. But when you speak in tongues, you don't know what you're saying. You are saying something that is meaning, but you don't know the meaning until the person who gives you the language gives you to, uh, to, uh, to interpret. I, I did that, uh, a little exercise with, uh, um, with a leader in, uh, in, in the studio this is uh, on my side, it is translation, but on your side, it will be interpretation. Watch how this works, if you are happy, my brother. Mm. If I say, say, Mungu, could you say after me, Mungu? Mungu. Wamilele. 
That's it. Now, you've said Mungu wa milele. Now, you don't know what that means. No you idea. Don't, you don't even know what language that is. And you've never spoken that language, which means you can't, you know, translate that language. But I can give you to interpret that language. I can say it means Lord Eternal. Hmm. Lord Eternal. Eternal. It's in Swahili. Huh. So I, th- I thought it was, actually. Yeah. Yes, yes. <laughs> so it means Lord Eternal. Yeah? Yep. God is eternal. Oh Lord, the Lord is eternal. So, you see, if then I said to you, what you said is Lord is eternal, you would have understood what I said, but you just still don't know the language. Mm. I could say, Nasifio Mungu. You will say, Nasifio Mungu, but, yeah, but you would not know exactly what you're saying. So, you know, you don't have the intelligible capacity linguistically to be able to translate the language. Mm. So when the, the people who are speaking in tongues, uh, the person who's speaking in tongues start to speak, the Holy Spirit gives them the snippet of the meaning. And so they can get the meaning. It could be for the next two to three minutes or five minutes. You get the meaning of what the Spirit wants to say. And that is l- tongues plus interpretation becomes prophecy. Right. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. a person who goes to speaking in tongues is an, is an exhortation. Expect that the Holy Spirit will drop in your spirit, in your heart, the meaning what has been said. Because sometimes when you're hearing someone speaking in tongues, you, you, you know that they're in a praise situation. Yes. You, you can actually tell, but you don't know what the words are. Yes, it exactly. It just sounds, but you can, you can get... Is that what you're saying? Yeah, so you can actually... You get the feeling of it. You get the feel that they are in the yep. praise situation. Yep. And, and if you actually sincerely ask to the Holy Ghost, when you get that sense, mm. ask him to, to tell you the meaning of what they're saying, you can get... A moment of interpretation of tongue. It's a yeah. fantastic gift. It's happened to me a number of times. It's awesome. Mm, it is. <laughs> Let's talk about. I'm looking around. There's an elephant in the room. <laughs> and that elephant. How big is it? It is a big <laughs> elephant. And we try to avoid it as a church sometimes, I think. Yes, don't you? That's true. That's and we're true. talking about inclusion and tolerance and all of those things. Yes. Now, yes. recently, of course, there was the, the, the manly team with the different Guernseys they weren't wearing or were wearing. Yes. And it was not a good situation. Yes. So let's talk about that. Yes, let's talk about mm. that. It's one of those things that, uh, from a church standpoint these days, uh, you know, when this question arises, whether it is the church uh, members or even church leaders, uh, it's a bit of a, you know, uh, yeah. you know, because there is a sense that uh, is... It's taken over our culture like a like a, a fever uh, that we no one want to offend anyone. Mm. You know, mm. uh, you know, do not offend anybody. So, but then the truth gets hidden, in, doesn't it? That's exactly why. In fact, the thought and the idea that you shouldn't offend anyone is itself so dangerous. It is itself so dangerous. I'm saying, I'll repeat myself. Mm. The idea that you should not offend anyone or that you can actually speak and never offend anybody mm. is itself not only counter truth, 
it is itself so dangerous. Um, you know, I watched uh, Jordan Peterson's um, interview that he did with, I think, Kathy Newman, and uh, a, a journalist, uh, who was asking him the question, why should you have the right to offend anyone? Mm-hmm. Uh, he said, not, not that I have the right to offend anyone, but for me to be able to think, I have to take the risk that the thought that I'm going to have here, someone is going to disagree with it. Somebody's going to be happy with the thought I'm having. For you to be able to, f- to be free to think, you must entertain the idea that your thoughts may be offensive to someone. And there is no point having a thought if you can't articulate it. The right to thoughts implies the right to speak that thought, the right to speak your mind. You have a mind for that reason so that you may speak your mind. Now, when you speak your mind, somebody else is going to disagree with it. Now, what has gone wrong in our culture, my brother, is that people say, if you disagree with me, then you are offending me. Or if you disagree with me, if you don't affirm me, it means you hate me. Okay? Mm -hmm. So we're like, okay, well, especially in that sort of, uh, you know, LGBT community space, uh, this is, it's a, it's a consequence of, of what was called moral relativism. I'll, I'll look at moral relativism in a second. But I want to look at these ideas of how dangerous they are. So the person who says, if you, you say something like this, you will offend me. Okay? And so the thoughts that you shouldn't be able to have any idea, any thought, and you shouldn't be able to speak it because you may offend someone, then it will preclude you from having a thought whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Now, at first it sounds righteous, it sounds like a good idea. Oh, what about if we could all just, you know, sing Kumbaya and hug each other and nobody will ever disagree with anyone? Well, that in practice, even within those own very communities, is not even practical. It cannot work. Well, no one grows. Well, because it can't even be, it can't even be possible. Surely, as as you and I talk and share, then people grow from that, don't they? Yes, exactly. If I sit there, you see, I was brought up in the silent generation, and the silent generation was a child is seen and not heard. Yes. Absolutely. Mm. And for years, it took me, it took me probably 30 years to get over that truth. To learn that I need, I need to speak. Yeah. I can speak yeah. and not cause offence. Yeah. And if yeah. I do, yeah. it's still my right to speak. Exactly. And by, while I'm speaking, somebody else might not like what I'm saying. Yeah. But you see, our culture has espoused a second set of thoughts that are dangerous. So I said, saying that don't speak because if you speak, you're going to offend someone is an impracticable idea because mm-hmm. what will happen is you will have this contrived Pretend to agree because anyone who holds any conviction whatsoever will come across somebody else who holds convictions that are different from theirs. Mm. We can't hold all the same convictions. Our convictions come from different sources, okay? Upbringing, you know, the experiences you've gone through. Some uh, come from p- place of authority. You went to university or from religious authority. For example, Jesus taught this and taught that. So we've got many sources of, of convictions that we come to hold. And so the point is to seek to see whether the conviction we have are in line with what we call objective truth. 
objective truth. Which, of course, is the great strength of the, the Bible. That's exactly right. Now, if there is no objective truth, then all we left with is what is called rel- relative truth. Mm. True for you, but not true for me. Okay? That's how the idea of relativism started. It started out as benign. Mm. It's sort of a bait and switch dangerous idea. It started out, look, you have your belief, I have my belief, live and let live. But what one didn't realize that that very idea that you have your truth, I have my truth, is self-defeating. Mm. Because whatever truth you have, you have reasons why you hold that truth. And this person here has got reasons why they hold the truth. If you do not discuss those reasons to see which reasons fit with the real world, yeah, mm. the world within which we live, then at some point there's going to be a clash. So your truth, my truth, you start to say, don't offend me. Mm. But now you are saying that I can have my truth, you can have your truth which are going to contradict, which will end up in offense. You, you, at first, you wanted nobody to offend anyone. Mm. You want us to have a, a one truth, right? Then you turn around and say, no, no, your truth, my truth. Especially because if what I was saying, you know, agree with it, so you give yourself the freedom to go, no, that's your truth, keep it. That's my truth, keep it. Mm. So you're holding to contradictory position. Number three, because in the world of truth and conviction, the person who holds the truth, whether they like it or not, this is objectively and instinctively true. You would seek for others to come to your point of view. That's why we share ideas. If your ideas were not worth, you know, convincing people with, you would zip and never, ever talk, never tell anybody about anything. See, I like your word, seek. I think that's the important word for me. Yeah. You seek to bring that other person across. You don't impose yeah. it upon them. That's exactly You seek to bring them across. Yep. Now, what has happened with the relativistic world is somebody starts to say, your truth, my truth. And then they turn around and say, you have to accept my truth. Yeah. Dangerous. That's it. So it's, that's what I was saying. It's a bet and switch. Remember, for example, I don't know if you... When we were uh, you know, during the... Um, you know, change in the Marriage Act uh, the debate. And we were at the forefront of that particular discussion. Mm. And our contention was that these ideas are worth discussing. Let's talk about them because once we go down this path, it won't be just let us have our little, you know, world where we, we're happy for us and you leave your world. Mm. It will turn around and say, no, you have to accept our world or you can't live here. Mm. Because in a relativistic world, might becomes right. In an objective truth world, the authority, you, you, can't have, you can't have a moral law without a moral law giver, one of my heroes, Ravi Zacharias used to say. Mm-hmm. You can't have moral law without a moral law giver. In an objective truth world, which is the world of the Bible, the world of the Christian message, we recognize that truth doesn't depend on us, doesn't come from us, it comes from God. So that if you and I were to disagree, we go and observe and look at the objective reality and seek with God to see whether you and I, what we're looking at is not just subjective, but it is objective reality out here. Now, if you remove God out of the picture and there is no authoritative source of truth, 
then whoever is in charge, the most person who's got the most power, will impose their truth. I'll give you an example. I heard a, a mentor of mine telling a story of his, his brother, kids that went to a school in Hawaii. They were doing this uh, exercise for the kids called, you know, your truth perspective. So they gave kids sort of these um, exercise to do. Uh, they give them, for example, let's say somebody went and stole because they were hungry. Okay, they were hungry, so they went and stole. You know, what do you reckon? Should they be, you know, arrested and judged and put in? So kind of, you know, moral quandary kind of situation. And so when the the man learned that that was what they were doing to the sixth graders, they were, he went to say, no, you don't give to my children those morally difficult to nut out, uh, you know, problems without giving them you know, principles and, and ways to deal with them. No, 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 we don't want them, we don't want to teach them our truth and our moral conviction. We want them to come to their own convictions. Mm-hmm. He said, well, what you're teaching there is moral relativism. It's dangerous. But, so what happened is that school, <laughs> later on, the kids uh, who were a grade a bit up came to the conclusion that in their own truth, in their own moral truth, they think it's okay to cheat on the test. So they went to the teacher who was saying you should have your own moral convictions and moral truth. They said to the teacher, we've come to the conclusion that the best way to succeed is to teach on a test. Now, the teacher had been saying to them, you've got your truth, I've got my truth. Guess what the teacher said to them in that case? Well, in this class, since I am the teacher and I value honesty, then it's my class, you do as I say. Did you notice that? Mm. The switch was now I'm going to use power. If he was, if the teacher was serious about teaching that it's your truth, your moral choose for yourself what is right for you, he would have said, "I value honesty, and I'll continue to act honest, honest in an honest way." But you value cheating; you go and cheat. Mm. He was not consistent. The teacher almost has a name, Adolf Hitler. <laughs> That's exactly <laughs> right. You can see that in a relativistic world. Might becomes mm. right. This is why this entire saga of the manly prayer, players. Think about it. The jersey they're wearing is sending a message called inclusion. I'll look at that in the moment. Mm. But that message is upholding particular people who want to send the message. They are. It's it's actually a, a, a communication. It's an evangelism. It's a it's a proselytizing of a message. Mm. Now that message conflict with the seven players. But here we are. They get told, hey, our game, we've got the power here, we've got the might, you're not playing. You wear the jersey or else. Mm. That doesn't sound inclusive, does it? It doesn't. Yeah. Now, look, we're talking about the elephant in the room of inclusion and tolerance, etc. Yes. Let's follow through on what you were saying. Yes, so it is quite extraordinary that in our culture today, especially from that side of the rainbow politics, mm. if you will, uh, some terminologies that used to be, that had classic definitions have been redefined, but in the most incoherent way possible. It is extraordinary. Think about it, my brother, that when you say that somebody is included, when you include someone, it means the person is part of the group, even though they may have the characteristics and the beliefs that otherwise would not be included in the group. That's what inclusion in a classic sense means. For example, 
if let's say we were birds of the same feather and we were all wearing same colors, me being a group is not be me, me being included. I'm part of the group anyway because I wear the same colors. I would be included if there were all the things for which they would not want to have me in there. I'm different. I'm not really like part of the colors of the group. And then they just simply say, okay, well, even though you may not have the color of a group, we are so tolerant, classic definition, we accept everybody. That's what it means. It means we accept everybody regardless of, that's what the inclusion, even when they use this terminology, that's what it means. Respectful of your background, the color of your skin, you know, the origin of your ancestors or your belief system. Mm. You're included. Mm. That is what inclusion should mean mm. or to mean. That's a classic definition of inclusion. But look at the corruption of the world, uh, of the word. The word has become you're included only if you look like us, only if you think like us. I mean, I'm not, so the look is not, not, I'm not talking about skin colors because mm. I mean, the, it's the colors we wear. We mm. wear the, we have to wear our colors. You have to prone our message. You have to have our belief system. Mm. You have to deny your own core values. If you do not, you will be included, not included. Mm. And that's exactly what happened with the man. This is what has happened. Mm. I was saying that if this team and everybody in the culture wanted to be inclusive, all they needed to do was to say, these seven players have, look, their Christian faith is sanctimonious. It's holy as much as the LGBT people feel that their belief is not holy. It, it is so holy that if somebody disagrees with it, they get upset. And the Christians are holding what Jesus taught very holy. And I, I could not doubt out why that is. You see, sexuality is holy in a Christian message. It is holy. It is sanctified. It's actually the holiest thing that God set apart. And in the LGBT message, of course, the sexual revolution, sexual freedom is holy. You can't, you, you cannot... Uh, criticize it, you, you will basically bear the brunt of the, the force. That's exactly what. Just try and criticize it. Just try and say, no, that, that they, what you believe about sexuality is not right. And see what happens. And so for them to say, wait, you Christian have to quit your belief about what Jesus taught about sexuality and come and wear our message about sexuality so that you'll be included. It's basically not saying we want you to be included. They say we want to convert you. If we don't want to, if you're not converted, we will subjugate you. Mm-hmm. What it means is you have to wear these colors or you will forego every other benefit that you could have gotten being part of the team, being skilled, mm-hmm. being able to play the game. What has all that got to do with the belief of what this other side movement is carrying? Mm-hmm. This, that has no bearing on the quality of the game. And by the way, if they were inclusive, they could have said to these players, look, the jersey of the team has these colors, purples, something like that. The others will wear, you know, with the line with rainbows. But you guys, the message that the rainbow carries, you don't agree with it. So, I mean, not the message that rainbow is, that they don't agree with it is not that people who who are part of that community should be loved and should be looked after, should be friends. They've always played together. That team. Mm-hmm. Among them, there are gay people in that team. There are, not that I know any, but I, I assume there is. And there are the Christians. It's, they've always been the same team. Mm. 
play together side by side, no prejudice, until you have to wear this or else. So the inclusive crowd have created this division. Because if they had let the manly seven wear the color of the team without the rainbow, I can guarantee you those boys would have played the, team, the, the game together. Mm -hmm. They would have sweat together. They would have been in those trenches together. There would have been no division there. Mm -hmm. The inclusion cr uh, uh, crowd have basically brought division. They bring division and call it inclusion. Because if you don't accept our message, then you will not play the game. You will be excluded. Think what is amazing is the same people who some years ago used to say, well, we had our belief and we were excluded out of society. Have now turned the tab and they're so powerful and they want to exclude anyone. Mm -hmm. I read so many comments. Oh, you know, the, this place should be fired. This place should lose their livelihood. It's like what, what happened with, with Israel Falah. Now, what you look at, it's the word inclusion has just been totally corrupted. It's like the word tolerance. My brother, if you and I, we agree in all the things. You're a Christian, I'm a Christian. We agree in everything. You're not tolerating me. Tolerating means you're with somebody else whose belief is so different from yours. But you go, you know what? We're all human beings. We're part of the same team. We will treat each other you equally. That is what basically the Australian values are that. Mm. How are we accepting that Australian values are being subverted right here in front of our eyes? This should concern every Australian. Not only I'll get to the Christian in a moment, but it should concern every Australian of good sense. Every all the good people of Australia need to go, this is this is no longer okay. Mm. You know, I don't have to accept your point of view to live together. Think about the people in that crowd who carry the rainbow message don't agree with the manly players. So they're trying to tell us if we don't agree with you and we have the power, we'll exclude you. Mm -hmm. So they can't say that they're inclusive or tolerant. They're saying we will use the power to actually make you wear the jerseys that is exactly against your conviction. Now, how would it work if, you know, you know a, a, the team decided... People are going away for God so loved the world and gave his only begotten son yes. on the on the Jersey team just because to be inclusive, to include the Christians, right? Mm. Because that's a Christian message. You know, God so loved the world, gave his only so whosoever believes in him should not perish, have everlasting life, which is the message that flowers carrying. If okay, all everybody wear Jesus. Jesus on the jersey. Mm. Every single person. And that means we're inclusive. We accept the Christians as we accept everybody. They will not do it. The other side will not do it. Mm. And so, do you see the unfairness of this? Mm. So, it is not like we're inclusive. We accept that we will impose our message on you at the risk of you being castigated and kicked out. And if you had the same message, we don't respect it. We don't respect your message. That's why we're asking you to change it. Wrong belief you have. It's no longer your faith, your truth, my truth. It's no longer relative. Now we have the power. Mm. We will make sure that you change your belief because it's wrong beliefs. And if you continue to carry it, we will punish you for it. Mm. And that is the height of injustice right here, playing in our very eyes in a country of fair go. In a country of a fair go. Yeah, got you. Even looking at the Senate at the moment with the, the Speaker saying she wants to get rid of the Lord's Prayer. Yeah. 
Yeah. I mean, is, is, is that a, it will be interesting to see what the vote will be like. Yeah. And so that goes exactly in the same vein. You can see this has permeated our culture. The person who's the Speaker of the House, I understand, of the Senate, I understand the person who's an atheist. Hmm. Think about that. You are in this society where, regardless of your belief that there is no God, in a chamber that the Lord's Prayer is spoken, you have ended up the Speaker of the House. Hmm. You've not been you know, marginalized for your belief or being segregated and being told you couldn't occupy that place. And by the way, this is in a society where up until now, all the Christians are still in the majority. Mm. They haven't done that. So, so but you, you come in, you say, yeah. well, now that I'm here and I'm in charge, I don't want your belief and I want it erased. Yeah. Well, you, you don't even, you can say that the Lord's pray in that chamber without you believing it, or you can just keep quiet and not say it. Yeah, exactly. So it is this might makes right uh, kind of approach uh, on that side. We can't live together anymore. And talk about, you know, the days of inquisitions, right? Which everybody now looks back with a, with a, with a, with a bit of, uh, you know, we, 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 we look, look at it and regret that wasn't okay. But now here it is happening right here in, 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 our, in, in, the, in, our very, in front of our, our very eyes. Where if you don't have these right beliefs, if you don't have all these right convictions about sexuality and what we think the world should be, then you should be kicked out and you will have no say here. How can we change that, though? Speaking ah, out. That is a good question there. Now, the way to change this out, uh, I, I'll lay, I'm, I'm going to start with just one quick point first, and then depending on and where, where, you know, how, how far you want me to go. Um, the first thing to do to, to, to change is to know what you believe and why you believe it. Yes. That is the first place where the church has gone wrong. It, because the man and the woman, in the, the general person in the pew, doesn't really, I'm not being critical of people, but just mm. it seems to me they don't, and I'm, I'm, I'm guilty of it myself, we don't go to the depth. Yeah. And I think that's the strength of your church, isn't it? That's the very thing. Yeah, yeah, it it yeah. is a reasonable Christianity. Yeah, yeah, and therefore, let us explain to you mm, what mm. is behind it. Yeah. So it is, you know, it's one thing uh, to have people sit in the pews and they just hear uh, mm. things that they already agree with. Okay, they agree with and you, they hear that. But, you know, being able to say to them, why do you believe that? That's where we should head. Mm. Should be heading there. A phrase I while we're off off air and you're chatting to to your friends on Facebook, etc. Yeah. The phrase that kept coming up was, "But I don't know what to say," and I think that is so true. Yes, and I say it of myself even, and I train for the ministry. Mm. But mm. you've got to keep refreshing. Yes, because I don't know what to say. Yes, and wouldn't the majority of people in the majority of churches? wouldn't know what to say if their faith was really put to the test. That's exactly right. That is true that majority of people would not know what to say. We're not being critical. No. We're, we're seeking to say, well, yeah. let's start to know. Yeah. Mm. And that, that's where, where the church is at. And, and I wanted to say that this issue is big. It's huge. It's large. It's not just simply few players that are going to miss up some few games. This is going all across our culture. There's all sorts of changes that are brought about in workplaces. What what kind of language do we use? You know, pronouns and everything else. You know, it's it's large. And what it does is 
it is a direct challenge to the message of the gospel. You see, either Jesus is who he said he was, and what he says matter, and the world as he depicted it is exactly how it is. And by following his teachings, we are in contact with truth, which Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one goes to the Father but through me. In other words, you see the world the way I see it. You, if you don't see that way, you won't go to the Father. Mm-hmm. That's what it means. It's the way. The way to see life. If you don't trust him, to trust him doesn't mean that have him in your pocket. Uh, pull him out just whenever you want. You know? Mm-hmm. No, it's, it says you can't say, Lord, Lord, but you don't obey what I say. Mm-hmm. So whatever Jesus taught is true. And because whatever Jesus taught is true... Trusting in him means obeying whatever is true, which is whatever he taught. And by obeying whatever is taught, we're trusting him and we have our way to the Father. Now, think about, for example, the fact that sexuality, as Jesus presented it, you know, you take from the book of Genesis, uh, you know, the Bible presents this binary world and presents the purpose of sexual unions and, 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 and how it should, and the Bible actually uses the, the analogy that is used in scripture for sexuality is worship. Or if, if you're a Christian, you've never read this text in the Bible, how about you go and read it, Ezekiel chapter 16. It is a colorful depiction of a love story between God and Israel. And see the metaphorical ideas that God uses to describe his people and the union, the worship of him and the worship of other gods, which he calls prostitution or adultery. Mm. And so you can basically mm. get the idea, sexuality is sacred. In Jesus' teaching, and it is a matter of complementarity. So these manly players hold on to something so dear to the message of the gospel that, you know, asking them to forgo it is basically asking them to walk away from Jesus altogether. Mm. And so, in that sense, I know many believers may say, oh, it's a minor issue. It is not. It is a huge, large, big issue. And so then you, you, we get to the question you were asking. Well, I may believe this, but I don't know what to say. Mm. Now, in, instead of you know, you know, complicating the issue and giving you tons of knowledge, see, the, the strength is not in how much you know. Not really. You may know in very, very little. But the strength in this issue is being able to prod the belief of the person who's making the claim. Think about it this way. The way to do it is, I, I do run this class. Anybody who's interested, you listen to us on the radio, I'm happy to give you, and we do 12 weeks class on this. Uh, so you'll be very equipped. No problems. But I'm just going to give you a quick summary, given a few minutes we have. The way to do it is to ask the person who makes the claim, these people are not inclusive. For example, that was the, well, they're not inclusive. Now, the way to do it, the person making the claim that these players are not inclusive, ask them a few questions. What do you mean by inclusive? Mm-hmm. Okay? You need to ask the question. So he has to say, well, they don't want to wear this message. Okay, so do you mean that anybody is included only if they wear that message? Isn't that forcing people against the belief before you include them? Mm. See? Isn't that forcing people against that they have to change their belief before you include them? In which way is that inclusion? <laughs> yes. I've just, I have made no claim. I have just simply asked the question. 
Let the person answer your question. So think, this, is the, this was the strength of the ministry of Jesus. Jesus, when faced with his detractors, he asked them questions. I've actually done a count. I mean, I didn't literally do it. A friend of mine did the count. So I've got his notes, mm-hmm. and it's great. My friend Alan Sleeman came here uh, a few years ago, um, and we're actually looking forward to bringing him back again. Uh, when you read in Matthew, Jesus asked 94 questions to everybody who came to him. The Pharisees, the blind men who wanted to be healed, the leper, Jesus asked 94 questions. In Mark, 59 questions. In Luke, 82 questions. In John, 49 questions. Guess what? Jesus asked 284 questions. That's a lot of questions. Now, I want to give you just simply questions that are very simple that you can ask. Whenever I'm in this kind of situation, what do you mean? We call it the Colombo tactic. I'll actually recommend you buy a book. You could read the book for yourself. It's written by one of my mentors, distant mentor. I've met him, uh, Gregory Cockle. So K-O-U-K-L, Cockle, Gregory, is written tactics, uh, a game plan for d- discussing your Christian convictions. Fantastic book. Tactics, a game plan for discussing your Christian convictions. Every Christian, please church leaders, every Christian ought to read that book. Say the, say the title again because I'm slow. I just picked my pen up. and Yeah, now I'll say it again. Yeah. So the book is Tactics. Yes. A Game Plan yeah. for Discussing Your Christian Convictions. Wow. Fantastic. And his name is quite... Uh, it, it's Gregory yeah. Cockle. Now I'll spell Cockle. It's yes, K-O-U-K-L. Cockle. Cockle. Wonderful. Yeah. So, uh, Greg uh, runs an organization called Stand to Reason. Mm. So, if you go standtoreason.org, or even if you download the Stand to Reason app, uh, or the, 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 like there's a lot of resources right now, even if you didn't just sit in a class. I, I, I'm saying to you, you need to know how to engage a culture. Mm. Mm. If the church doesn't do this today, it will be too late. Five, five or six years ago, um, no, actually, you know, eight years ago when we came to Bendigo, uh, we started to talk about this. I didn't meet a number of church leaders to talk about this. Because the danger is, isn't that to change the program, to have a, a yes. band up front, to do to, yes. to do all the what I call the band aid things. Yes. But you were saying this this is the key to yeah. a church progressing and growing. Yes, please, please, if you love yourself, and if you love the Lord. And if you love the message of the gospel and you think you don't want to be pushed around and made to just to, and you want to learn how to be gracious in these conversations and feel confident, please buy the book, mm. start reading it. And we run a course if you want to further, you know, we do tons of practice so that you can be comfortable. There's no conversation. Generally, there are a few conversations that comes my way that I have never sort of trend through and mm. thought about and so that you can uh, you know i wish even those those players i wish they, they could have had the training so they could go okay let's sit down let's talk about this mm. you see the message of the gospel is true and it is worth defending and if the church doesn't do this today while we're still in the majority mm. think what would happen like we've got 
every Sunday like this. There are people across our churches, inside our churches, a lot of them inside our churches, who still don't know what to say, and they will always zip up when that conversation. Not that they don't want to engage, they just don't know. Oh, yeah. They've not been trained to do that. Mm-hmm. And so this is not a, a, a small matter. It's not a means of failure. If it's going to cost these players, they are very public figures. They are public figures. Lose their livelihood, everything else. How about the person who's in the back of the wood that nobody knows? Mm. You see? So this is a large issue. The gospel was preached in very hostile environment with grace. We can still do it. And we can love everybody, including those we disagree with. Jesus taught that. Including those our enemies. We can love them. No problems. But the other side doesn't seem to believe it's possible. Because they can't do it. I, I love your enthusiasm. Uh, I, I've actually realized not coming in on a Sunday now that I'm missing out on, on a reasonable Christianity and some absolute gems. Just let's repeat that the book again is just very quickly. Yes, so it's uh, Tactics, a game plan for discussing your Christian convictions. It's by Gregory Cockle. Fantastic. Now, if people wanted to to do your course, where would they find out about it? So they can uh, get in touch with us on a Reasonable Christianity Facebook page. Just send us a message there. Or uh, you can email us. Our uh, email is ATA Reasonable Christianity. So at a reasonable Christianity at gmail.com. Just send us an email and we'll get in touch with you. Samuel, I had to tell you, but uh, time's flown again. (laughs) And it's the end of the program.